The Square Peg Podcast. Mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. Not all of us look the way the world expects us to look, think as the world expects us to think, or arrive at our destination the way the world expects us to. On the Square Peg Podcast, we give a voice to mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, and here are their stories. Thank you to the Searchlight Needles for getting us started as always. The hashtag needles aren't just a quartet of middle-aged, overweight, and balding El Pasos. Robert Martinez, Josh Smith, Adrian Ortiz, and David Sines are four really fantastic guys who hold down jobs and take care of families during the week, and they rock out on the weekends. You can find them on the web at www.searchlightneedles.com. You can find them on Facebook, and you can download their album on all streaming services. And now, here's a message from one of the sponsors who make this program possible. Heath Johnson, owner of Camino Tattoo Studio, has been a professional licensed tattoo artist in Las Cruces since 2000. He does everything from American traditional to photorealistic tattooing, and he works by appointment only. Email him today to get your custom tattoo. You can find him at CaminoTattooStudio.com or from the bio in the link at www.CaminoTattooStudio.com. Of course, you can also find Camino Tattoo Studio on Instagram and Facebook. And just a little personal note for me, um, turning 48 here real soon, didn't get my first tattoo until about two years ago. And um, while Keith didn't do that one, he's done three since then. And uh, I've been going through this kind of transition, you know, in my later 40s, if you will, and uh, made some changes to my fitness, to my, my supplementation and my diet. And I've seen some big changes in my body. And I'll tell you, I've never loved my body. I probably never will. But with the changes I've made and the artwork that Keith has uh, been able to put on my body, learning to hate it a little bit less every day. So if you want to be uh, like me and get some good artwork on you, give give Keith a, an email uh, and, and go get your the tattoo. Square Peg Podcast. My guest today spent the first nine years of her life living in a Krishna temple. Then she experienced the outside world for some time before returning and eventually traveling India with her spiritual advisor. Today, Madhavi Glick lives in Florida, where she raises her two daughters and she works on a horse farm. Madhavi Glick, welcome to the Square Peg Podcast. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. It seems like we were just talking, I mean, not too long ago. Ha ha, funny, funny, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Just seems... But I got everything right <laughs> so this time. I got everything accurate. How's your 2022 so far? So far, so good. Lots of big things coming. <laughs> Lots of big things coming. You don't have any complaints. I don't have any complaints. We're all getting older. The world's still turning, and we're still dealing mm-hmm. with COVID. But exactly, we are going to learn a lot of good, interesting stuff. I, you know, I was just saying a, a few minutes ago, I think for a lot of people um, who, at least those of us who've grown up in some big cities uh, and have had at least some sort of limited exposure to uh, people of your background and your faith, uh, We've, we've been exposed to it, but we don't know much. And for people who maybe mm-hmm. have grown up somewhere uh, where they haven't been exposed, hopefully they'll learn a lot today. I know I'm going to learn a lot, and I'm excited to find out about you growing up in a Krishna temple uh, near Baltimore, right? Yes. Yeah. And I was born in Baltimore, and then for eight years I lived in the Philadelphia temple. So not too far from there. Okay. So you were born in Baltimore, then moved to Philadelphia. Yes. Now, what you described for me... Uh, I want to say some relatively, and maybe this is an understatement, some modest living conditions. Yeah. So um, the first, well, yeah, the first nine years in the temple, I shared one room with my parents. And I remember at one point, our bathroom was also shared. So different uh, practitioners that were also living in the temple and other rooms would come and use our bathroom 
and we had beds on the floor and yeah, it was very simple conditions. <laughs> would you call that, I mean, would you consider that entire experience to be communal or semi-communal or, or what would you call it? Oh, that? definitely um, communal. We all, we ate together. We sang together. We do like prayer services um, at least three times a day. So yeah, it was very helping in the kitchen. Everyone is working together for the common good for each other and for God. So in my memory, anyways, it was quite blissful. Well, now, were you actually living inside? Uh, and when you say a temple, I, I'm maybe I'm assuming too much, but I'm assuming a, kind of a large structure with a big uh, chapel or sanctuary with maybe some, some yeah. rooms on the side, classrooms, or what, what was the layout? So mm, I was young when we left, but as far as I remember, yeah, it was like a large-sized home, you could say, with a bit of land. Um, and then there was like a temple room, which is like a place of worship and prayer, and we would have classes there. And then there was rooms throughout the building where different practitioners would stay, and a huge kitchen. So because we were cooking feasts, like every Sunday they have a feast, so maybe you know up to a hundred or more people might come on any given. So the kitchen is always busy, and yeah, I loved helping out in there even as a little kid. <laughs> And so for as far as your, your education, uh, as, as far mm -hmm. as what needs to be met, you know, what was required of you by the state or by where it is that you lived, I'm going to assume, I mean, I, I don't know if you guys called it homeschooling in, the, in those days, but what was your what was your daily, you know, education or your, your regular instruction like as far as, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic? Um, so there was, at one point, there was a day school, there was a bunch of kids, and so we had a teacher, and we were learning, you know, our basic stuff, and my mom was always big on reading, and so we'd go to the library, and I'd pick out whatever books I was interested in, and yeah, I would say I was homeschooled, or nowadays people call it unschool, where you're able to learn about the things you're interested in and focus on that, so until sixth grade, we had a very loose curriculum, you could say. <laughs> well, I'm, you know, so in addition to reading and writing arithmetic, I think if, if, if you're in a family who is that dedicated to and that, that devoted to their faith, that they're living in a, in a, in a kind of a communal situation like that at a house of worship, I'm going to imagine mm -hmm. that religious instruction is a, a big part of what you're doing on a daily basis. And is it integrated? I know a lot of people, um, you know, nowadays, the probably the largest group of homeschooled people that we know of are people who are, are Christians, uh, a lot of evangelical mm -hmm. Christians, a lot of far right yeah. Christians. And I've heard it explained to me that they want their faith and their belief, their teachings of Jesus and, and the Bible integrated into an, a, a, everything that they do, whether it's math or science or, or literature. Mm -hmm. how, how is your how is your faith? Uh, how did your parents introduce that or was it introduced into the basics of the reading, writing and arithmetic? Um. So I feel really fortunate. Um, lots of kids that grew up, you know, in the institution had very different experiences and some went to boarding school. But my mom was like, no one can raise my kid better than me or love my kid better than me. And so she kept me with her. And I feel, of course, living in the temple, um, yeah, I remember being in, in the spiritual classes and mostly just coloring. <laughs> my mom would give me a coloring book. So I feel like some of the information was, you know, coming in. And my father, he studied um, philosophy, psychology, and religion. And so those type of conversations were more a part of our life. 
And when I would experience things or have a hard time, then my father would advise me in a more like spiritually guided way. But uh, thankfully, it was never something that was forced upon me, where if I didn't want to go or I didn't want to do something, it was never, they felt that it was a loving spiritual process. And so they wanted to share that aspect of it with me more than the rigidity of rules and regulations like that. Do you, do you feel like you learned more about your faith uh, and your connection to it through actions rather than seeing, being sat down and taught something from a book? I mean, you're talking about making these feasts and living communally and, and caring for one another. Mm-hmm. Do you think that had a bigger influence on your, on your, for lack of a better term, your religious education uh, than sitting down and learning from a book? Yeah, definitely. I feel like my parents showed me what it was to be in this path and be loving and spiritual and real human, normal human beings as well. And that was very much like just an integral part of our lives. But as I I feel I learned more when I was 19 and I came back to it and I studied with my teacher and I was I was hearing I was actually hearing more than I was reading. I I feel like I'm more comprehension that way. Okay. Now the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. Mm-hmm. That's a mouthful. Um, yes. What is it? <laughs> so um, the founder, his name is Srila A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada. That's another mouthful. I was going to say. He, <laughs> so he met, his, he was practicing um, in India. He was chanting and he spent many years in, I wouldn't say complete isolation, but in a period of solitude and meditation. And his guru instructed him to come to the West and to preach this process, or we call a path of bhakti yoga. So he came in his, in his 70s at an old age. He had two heart attacks on the freighter ship that he took. He came with hardly any money and just a couple books that he had translated to English. And he went to New York, and he sat at Tompkins Square Park, and he started chanting. And I'm sure most people who have connected or seen the Hare Krishnas will see this public chanting. And and from there, you know, he has a worldwide organization and temples all over the world. And his mission was that the names of God would be sung in every town and village. And so his books have been translated to so many languages. So the intention and the path is a very ancient path, and the intention of his is very beautiful. Um, and then, you know, I think when people come, you know, we come from all different backgrounds, and we come with all types of issues, no matter what the religion. And so sometimes the message gets mixed in with other things. <laughs> well, is this... Uh... Uh, a derivative of obviously uh, your your founder came from, and I'm not mm-hmm. going to even pretend to try to pronounce the name. Mm-hmm. Um, too many syllables, but um, sure. the faith that was brought to the United States um, a, mm-hmm. came from India. Uh, definitely, yeah. obviously, a very Eastern um, way of, of looking at things. Mm-hmm. Uh, a derivative of Hinduism. Yeah, we could say that. Yeah, under an umbrella of Hinduism, and then it's a particular lineage guru to disciple that's been passed on. And one of the most beautiful things is that he would express that this isn't a sectarian religion or like, basically his goal is that people pray and chant the names of God, whatever their faith is, that they're calling out to God and they're praying. 
And so the what he was teaching is a you know a particular path and process, but overall um, our teachers and our lineage are very broad broad minded and not sectarian. Well, it's you know I just really had this thought when you were talking about chanting a few minutes ago. And mm-hmm. of course, we had a conversation a few weeks ago before this, you know, before we did this interview. Mm-hmm. And I talked about the fact that I, I kind of have a nose for my own. I was raised in a Jewish family. And I, when I saw your last mm-hmm. name, I immediately recognized mm-hmm. it uh, as a very Jewish name. And mm-hmm. you, you explained to me that you're uh, at least on your father's side, uh, your family was Jewish. Your father comes from a Jewish tradition, but that in mm-hmm. his studies and you said that, you know, he was a scholar and studied philosophy and and, mm-hmm. and religion and whatnot. He had an interesting explanation uh, for the connections between your faith, your observance of your Eastern faith, mm-hmm. and of Judaism. Now, of course, any explanation you give is going to be well above my understanding of, of anything <laughs> biblical. But um, mm-hmm. can you just explain your, your best understanding of, of the connections your father drew uh, between yeah. your faith and between Judaism? Absolutely. So he spent 25 years researching and he spoke with rabbis, Orthodox rabbis, all over the world. He spoke with the head of the religion department at Florida International University. And no one could refute his findings. So one is his, his all his information and research is available free online. And maybe we can add a link in somewhere for that. Um, and so what he found was that in the original language, linguistics and words that the Jews were using, that there was a lot of similarities in R and the Vedic and Sanskrit terms. So the most, uh, I would say, profound one was there's a verse in the Old Testament where God says, I'm a jealous God, I have no other gods before you. And so the in the translation, it's, my name is Elkanah, have no other gods before you. So my father, he got very excited because if you ask anyone in India who is Kana, they'll say, that's Krishna, that's God. And he went to an Orthodox rabbi, and he ran in the room. He's super excited, and he goes, who is Kana? Who is Kana? And the rabbi slapped his face and covered his mouth and said, if you ever speak these words in front of me again, I won't talk to you. So because of certain circumstances, the Jews were not allowed to say this name of God. But it is a name of God, according to the Jews, and it is a name of God, according to the Hindus. And so for my father, among so many other things like this, this was his main point, was that we're worshiping the same God. There's no need to fight or argue over religious practices or external you know, ceremony, that the the person that we're looking towards, this almighty being, this divine, whatever you want to name, you want to use to refer to him, that it's all one and we shouldn't fight. <laughs> you know, I also had a very interesting thought, you know, talking on the, along the lines of chanting. Uh, I actually mm-hmm. just interviewed the cantor uh, from the synagogue where I grew up in Falls Church, Virginia. Okay. And we talked a bit about um, obviously the role of the cantor in Jewish worship is, is that of a, you know, leading the music and leading the song and mm-hmm. talked about how important uh, music and singing is, is in, in Judaism because it helps a person express and, and connect to their faith and, and, and a lot of the feelings that go along with that. And mm-hmm. I had mentioned to him that, you know, when I, when I uh, was bar mitzvah in 1987, uh, it's the, the custom for, for the young person to chant or when anybody 
reads from the Bible, or excuse me, reads from the Torah to chant, mm-hmm. to chant the yeah. Torah verses for obvious reasons. And I actually refused to do so because my thinking was, well, I have a shitty voice. Like, who wants to hear me <laughs> chant? Like, I'm just going right. to sound stupid and I'm 13 mm-hmm. and my voice is cracking anyway. But yeah. um, I, I kind of drew a connection there to, you know, and I don't know how much is co- this a coincidence and how much of this is actual mm-hmm. evidence of the connect- connection between mm-hmm. uh, your, your faith and of Judaism. But there mm-hmm. is that element of chanting, uh, that element yeah. of, of uh, uh, becoming closer to your own feelings and your own spirituality through, through singing mm-hmm. and chanting. And, it, of course, it was just interesting because it's not something I've ever really thought of. Now, mm. Did you mm-hmm. ever have at any point in your life any connection to Judaism or any kind of uh, observances? Um, so I went to some of my cousins, bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs. Both sides of my my mother and my father's side are Jewish. So I attended that. I went to temple um, a couple times. Um, and we celebrated Hanukkah because, you know, who doesn't want to have you know, presents every day. Right. <laughs> and we did Christmas because <laughs> I always wanted a tree. So um, I don't, I wouldn't say that I, you know, had a deep interaction or consistent interaction within the Jewish faith. Most of my understanding was coming from my dad's findings and him sharing that with me. And then what I, can, of course, can remember <laughs> of that. Okay. Well, you now at, at any case, when you're eight or nine years old, you guys moved off the site. I know you, this. You said there was some sort of fire, um, but you okay. Went... So no, the fire was when I was little. We moved from Philadelphia to Miami when I was nine. Okay, and so <laughs> you started going to public school at that time. Now, before we talk about your your immersion, if you will, your immersion <laughs> in public school, what um, having lived on the, the site of the temple up until that point, what kind <laughs> of exposure to, to the mainstream culture did you have? Um, well, we would visit my grandmother in Miami on occasion. Where all so Jews go to live. Yes. <laughs> At least when exactly. you and I were kids, our, our grandparents all lived in Miami. Yes. Oh, absolutely. So both grandmas, you know, I go visit them and, you know, I get some cartoons in or TV. And uh, growing up, my parents, uh, sometimes they'd travel and raise money selling like, paintings or different things um, during Christmas. They called it the Christmas Marathon. And so I, when we'd go on these trips or stay somewhere, we lived in Maine for a little bit, um, I remember, and I went to, like, a kindergarten. So I had, like, some interactions, um, and, yeah, it wasn't, like, a fearful thing to come into the world. It was just different. Now you, you mentioned going to visit your grandmothers and watching television. Did you know who, like, Madonna was and, like, Debbie Gibson and you <laughs> and no, no. When I started sixth grade, I would just name bands that my friends liked, and I would tell people when I would meet them, oh, yeah, I like uh, Guns N' Roses and Seal. <laughs> so so no, I mean, obviously no television and no radio were in, in the home that you lived in uh, to that point? No. Mm-mm. Now, what nope. about, just going back, I just had this thought really quick. You, we talked about your, your at-home education or your unschooling, as you say now. Mm-hmm. Um, had you been exposed to the typical, I'm trying to think of what, classic American literature and elementary age kid would, would, would read. I mean, I'm thinking more along the lines of like, you know, Mark Twain and John Steinbeck, which of course is a little bit, a little bit above that level. Yeah. But had you read any Judy Bloom or, or any of those are, you know, not that I remember, I don't recall really any of any, you know, outside world sort of things until public school was like a, culture shock. <laughs> and when you did go to public school, was it, um, you get the feeling it was pretty obvious that you had not lived uh, the same life that your classmates had? 
it, it gradually became more clear over time. Like when I, my, I went to summer school to start as an experiment. And when I sat down, the teacher said to take out a piece of paper and I took out my piece of paper and she's like, no, turn it around. So I turn it around and then no, turn it around. And I, I couldn't understand what she wanted me to do with the paper. And then it was the whole to the left side and the big part of the paper on the top. And so <laughs> just that kind of, you know, such a simple thing of, you know, I, I just had no clue. But I, I caught on very quickly. I, the schoolwork was extremely easy for me. And then it was really navigating the social dynamics of, of that reality. And, well, <laughs> that t- was talking, about, talking about the social dynamics, I mean, did you, you know, it wasn't until you were 18 that you went, kind of went back into to the temple. Uh-huh. Um, did you do things like dances and football games and, and after-school clubs, Spanish club and things like that? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, oh, what's it called? Where Safety Patrol. Okay. I tried that out for a little bit. Um, I did dance. They had like a, a dance thing. I did that. Um, I really liked playing sports. I was really good at sports. Um, what what kind of caught me was I had gone to summer school and there was a girl that lived in my neighborhood and we hung out every day during school and and after, and so she she um she says to me at the end of summer school, and she says, "I don't know if we're going to be friends, you know, when school starts." And I was like, "Well, why would that be?" And she said, "Because um, I'm a cool girl, and I don't know when school starts if you're going to be a cool girl or not, and I don't know if we're going to be friends." That sounds like a very middle school type of thing. Yeah, it was like so. I, oh, okay, and then Did you and then. Did understand what she meant? No, no, I, I, I didn't really, and I didn't have any concept. I just took it at face value. And then when school started, I was friends with all the cool girls, and I found that they were all pretty mean. And then I ended up hanging out with the nerdy girls. <laughs> you found your home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, now, obviously, if your parents put you in public school, there's obviously, obviously they were open to you living in, in more mainstream society, but how supportive were they? Were, were they real supportive of you doing the sports and the all the social stuff and, and, and all the typical teenager yeah. things? Were, you, were they strict? No, they. I would say my parents were on the opposite end of strict. They were happy hippies and mostly like, we just want you to be safe and we love you. And if you're ever in a situation, you know, you call us and, and they just, we talked about a lot of things and they also gave me a lot of freedom and were very, whatever I wanted to try sports, gymnastics, dance, karate, all of it. And fortunately my father was making enough financially to, to allow me to do those things. Now, um, what was your, well, along the lines of popular culture, I mean, I kind of joked before about had you ever heard of, you know, you two and Madonna. What what were your what would you say your you know, did you get into the typical? Did you enjoy the John Hughes films? And, you know, who were the bands that you followed and hanging up? Sorry, I'm sorry. I thought I muted that. <laughs> My daughter asked me something. Go ahead. So, no, I, you know, I was talking before about how you hadn't had any exposure really to popular right. culture with some of the popular music and things like that. Mm-hmm. When you did go in, you know, live live outside the temple and go to public school, mm-hmm. what were your interests like? What kind of music were you into? And did you see all the, did you watch all the John Hughes films and things like that? Um, so I liked, I guess I got into the alternative rock music at that time, um, like Nirvana and Pearl Jam. And then I really liked, um, oldies as well. My mom and I would listen to oldies in the car 
on the radio, like 50s and 60s bubblegum, you know, pop music. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I don't know why. I, like, I definitely like that grunge alternative sort of thing. And then the old classic rock, like the Beatles and the Doors and Pink Floyd and Janis Joplin. So that's that's where I, I got into. <laughs> well, what, you, I mean, eventually you did move back into the temple. And what, what was the impetus for that? I mean, what motivated you to, to, to kind of return to your roots, if you will? Sure. So, you know, I went through public school. I got about halfway through 10th grade. And, um, you know, at the time, roofies were like a thing, this, you know, date rape jug. And my one of my friends was actually taking them like recreationally at school. And I just remember sitting across from her and her looking at me and going, was I was I here yesterday? And wow. she's like, I don't remember. I took a, I took a roofie. And something inside, like deep inside me says, if you stay this path, you know, you're going to, you're in bad association and, you know, you're just, you might go down the wrong way. And I just, I felt like, yeah, my, my life direction. So I asked at the time, um, there was an opportunity that you could do um, homeschooling, um, do like dual enrollment where you do high school and college at the same time. So I thought maybe, maybe the college would be a better you know, options. So I was about 15. I took the entrance exam. I scored, I placed high enough to take honors classes. I did that for a year. And, um, my, my art teacher was a little inappropriate commenting to me and I started feeling uncomfortable and something else inside clicked, like something else is there for you, like something different. And so, um, I saved up money. I drove cross country and during that trip, I started chanting again. And some friends I was with, they wanted to visit temples. There was two devotees that were with me, two Hare Krishna boys, good friends. And so I started spending time. I met all these other kids that had grown up Hare Krishna, which I had never met before. And that's because I, didn't, I wasn't sent to boarding school and because we moved out of the temple as well. So I had this opportunity to meet all these kids who grew up in the movement, who had different perspectives, who I just connected with. And by the end of that trip, I was chanting again, and I was feeling inspired. And I thought, as an adult, even though I was 18, just 18, but I thought, I want to try this out as an adult and have my own experience and see, see what this life is like and see what it has to offer me. And you went where? So I moved into the temple. It was, it still is actually in Coconut Grove in Miami. Okay. And how long were you there? Mm -hmm. Um, So I was there for three months and I was, I was praying to find a teacher, a guru, like the one my father had met, the one that had brought it to the West. And um, three months later, my, my teacher, who I didn't know was my teacher at the time, but he ended up staying with my parents' best friends. And my father went to meet him, and after he met with him, he called me up and he said, you go and you stay there and don't leave until he leaves. <laughs> and and I did. The next morning, I went out. I, I went to the home. I met with him. Um, I think we could probably do a, a, a whole interview just on that first meeting. <laughs> right. But I would say just um, the experience, you know, we feel vibes, you know, people like, like someone or don't like someone, or you, you meet someone, you feel really good around them. And so I would say like no other person I'd ever met before was this 
really amazing, loving, you know, person. And, and I decided I'll give one year of my life to this practice and I'm going to follow as much as I can of what he says and see what happens. And so there's obviously (laughs) a process of learning. You're doing a lot. I don't know if you're a lot of listening, a lot of reading. Are you working? I mean, what are you doing? What what does your day consist of? You wake up and you do what? So about between 4.30 and 5 a.m., you wake up. Well, you wake up before that. So the first, um, like, morning meditation um, is around between 4.30 and 5. And we sing some hymns and do, it's called a puja, where they offer, there's deities. And so it's like the form of the Lord they worship. And then we would take time to chant um, mantra. We have like a rosary or beads. And then we take time to chant. And then there would be more singing prayers and then a class. Someone would speak. And then we'd have breakfast. And then, again, just, you know, hanging out, talking. Like when we were traveling, it was just very much like all day. You're, you're pretty much immersed. You're either singing, speaking, or hearing. Or See, dancing, <laughs> seeing, speaking, hearing, or dancing. Now, one thing I'm yeah, really eating. In, I mean, uh, 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 beyond the fact that you're older and and wiser, mm-hmm. I guess, and have experienced mm-hmm. more of life. What would you say the major difference was between your experience uh, for the first eight or nine years of your life living in a temple, and then going mm-hmm. back and kind of reintroducing yourself or reimmersing yourself in that in your faith? Mm-hmm. I think when I was younger, it was just. Oh, things are fun and pretty and like play. There wasn't a lot really of a, like an understanding of why we're doing this or what this song means or anything like that. Or what, what's even the purpose? Like what's the end game here? <laughs> Where are we going? Um, and then <clears throat> when I met my, my guru, then it became clear. What's the goal? What's the process? How to, how to get, how to move, um, you could say move ahead in the process to to gain more spiritual depth and to connect more with God, to develop a personal relationship with God. And I found that my as a as an adult or as a young adult coming in, all of the questions that I had had um, and questions that I didn't think to ask were answered. And the more that I studied and the more questions I had, there was some there was always an answer. And for me, there was a beauty in that, that there are all of my questions and anything anyone else asked me, if I don't know, I know someone who knows. You know, I want to, I want to talk about uh, the perception of, of your faith and of the International Society of Krishna Consciousness in popular mm-hmm. culture. And like I mentioned mm-hmm. before, having grown up right outside of a big city, you know, I spent four or five years when I was in college. I commuted to school and, and I actually worked as a nightclub bouncer in downtown Washington, D.C., mostly in Georgetown. Mm-hmm. And I remember standing on the door of, of this one bar I worked at, Nathan's, right on the corner of Wisconsin and M Street. Uh, and periodically, there would be some Christians that would walk up and down the block with you know banging on some drums mm-hmm. and chanting. Yeah. Now, the chant that we, I think most people have heard, if you've seen them in public, is that, a, is that the chant or is that a main chant? I mean, tell, tell me about that. Mm-hmm. So what they're chanting, um, of course, they do sing other songs when they're out. Um, but the main chant is called the Maha Mantra. And maha means great, and mantra, man means mind, and tra means the control. So it means the great mantra to control the mind. And so during different ages, periods of time in the history, and according to the Vedas, 
different practices were given given during different ages for the soul or for the you know human to reach enlightenment. And so for this particular age, which is called Kali Yuga, which means the age of quarrel, like fighting and hypocrisy, which we can <laughs> we can see, where women and children are unprotected, which we can also see. Um, so for this particular age and our particular struggles, this Maha Mantra was given by the sages. And so that's, that's the main mantra that we're chanting on our beads and usually when they're out on the streets. And so the movement, the idea is that in every town and village, people will be singing the names of God, calling out to God, and coming together regardless of, you know, caste or creed or, or birth or religion even, just coming together and, and singing. Now, you know, I think that... Um... I like to think that growing up, you know, where I did and being exposed to a lot of different cultures, I would have, uh, and, and I know that I have a respect for diversity and, under, and and having a respect for the fact that there are people who are a lot different than me. But I will have to admit that as a young 21, 22, 23-year-old, uh, I have to admit that seeing this, seeing people march down the street um, in in clothing and hairstyles that I'm not used to, that are definitely not Western, uh, mm-hmm. I saw it as a bit of spectacle. And yes. um, the one thing I, I I did enjoy, and we talked about this a little while ago, um, the little snacks they used to hand out, I you know, mm-hmm. I, I quite enjoyed, <laughs> and I don't know what they're called. I seemed to, the best the best of my recollection is some sort of apricot flavored something with some granola crust. Um, okay. what, is there a name for that? Um, I mean, we could have a loose term like call it a sweet ball. Okay. <laughs> And it could be made from from various things. And so what it is is that um, any food that we eat, we offer to God first. And, and so then by distributing and sharing that, the remnants that he's left for or that he's blessed, then there's some benefit to the soul through that. And so they'll always, like a lot of times in any gathering, Krishna gathering, there's always, they call prashadam, which is like sanctified food. And so they like to share that, and yeah, usually it's quite good. <laughs> well, these little snacks—I mean, you know—you've never seen me, but I'm a, I'm a large guy. I'm about 230 pounds, mm-hmm. and I may or may not have eaten two or seven of them at a time. <laughs> um, but you know, along the line of the food, I know that there are some dietary restrictions and very prescribed um, things that you do eat and you don't eat, and how they mm-hmm. relate to your faith. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. One thing I will say is that Srila Prabhupada, the, the gentleman who brought this to the West, there's an interview or a conversation he had, and he said, I have come for prashad, which is the food. I have come. You have come. You So, like, so many came into this practice because of how delicious <laughs> the foodstuffs were. So the idea behind, and also other yogic practices, Eastern practices, will... Um, follow particular diets, and the idea is that when we eat light, our bodies light, our digestive system isn't overworked, and we have more energy, and we have more time and, and calm even in our mind to meditate and to connect to the divine or to our spirit. And so the, the food regulations is no meat eating, like no meat, fish, or eggs, and also uh, no onions or garlic. I find that and interesting. Then, you, you talk you, when we talked on the phone. You mentioned that I think the onions and garlic is probably more intriguing to me than than not eating the meat. What, what's the reason behind that? So different. The, the way the Vedic system is is that everything is divided into three 
they call it the three modes of material nature. And they're goodness, passion, and ignorance. But not ignorance like an ignorant food, you could say, would be like it feels heavy going in and it feels heavy going out. <laughs> Very Western, if you will. Yes. <laughs> so, and then like a passion one would be like, you know, maybe chilies or something, things that excite us, caffeine also, or... Um, yeah, like chilies, caffeine, something that energizes us and, you know, brings in that nature. And then sattva, which means goodness, which is the foods that even like Jains and Buddhists a lot of times follow this as well. So that would be, it, it's light going in, it's light going out, it doesn't take a lot of energy to digest. And so some of the really like strict practitioners, like they'll eat very, very little, <laughs> a little fruits, a little roots. And, and they don't need to sleep as much, and they just go on into their spiritual practice, and that's where their, their time is not, for them, not wasted in cooking and preparing fancy meals. Now, you mentioned um, about, you know, eating light and practice of yoga. I want to talk about, you said, is it bhakti yoga that is particular to your, to your faith? Yes. Talk to me yes. about bhakti yoga, how, it, how it, it's different than other types of yoga, and how yoga mm -hmm. in general is consistent with and helps you express or connect to your faith? Sure. So yoga means union. And for there to be union, there has to be more than one thing. So my teacher would describe that yoga, that union in, in our path as the soul, God, and love. So love is like its own thing. And bhakti is, means loosely, it means devotion or service or love. And so this process is a loving devotional process of service to the divine in order to build a internal relationship and that we all are an eternal soul and we have that soul has a personality has desires wants and that's each individual soul has a personal divine connection with god and god manifests to that person in a particular way in a particular mood it could be in friendship or a parental mood or like a beloved and so um, most yoga, like we'll see mainstream yoga, is like stretching and body movements and breathing. And so the, our particular practice involves like the chanting, meditation, and hearing. So the idea is that when we want to develop a relationship with someone we've, maybe we've never met, we might see maybe a picture of someone and we're, oh, that person's attractive or I'd like to get to know them. Then... It, maybe we can't meet that person directly, but if we know, let's say, someone else who knows them well, we can maybe get more information. And when we become attracted and we like someone, then we want to know about them, and we also talk about them. And then if we meet them, then we have some loving exchanges, like giving gifts or receiving gifts or opening the heart and expressing oneself. And then also that person reciprocates by expressing themselves. And so there's many... There's actually, it's 60, they say 64 limbs of bhakti, which means there's different practices that you can do according to your, um, you know, according to your heart and your inspiration. And each one is to develop that personal relationship in self-realization of our soul's persona and also a personal relationship with God. Has there been a point in your life where you have not practiced yoga for any period of time? Yeah, yeah, I would say, like, when I hit public school in about in sixth grade, I was like, my parents are Hare Krishnas, and I don't know what I am. <laughs> uh, 
and that went on until until yeah until I was 18 and I moved back in the temple it was very much it felt so strange compared to what everybody else was doing and I think at that age it's normal you want to kind of fit in and I stuck with being vegetarian that was like I never had an interest in eating meat it kind of turned my stomach a little like it just I mean, I, I had the opportunity, but it was one of the rules or whatever that just, it didn't appeal to me. <laughs> you know, looking back, do you feel like you had a different type of energy about yourself not practicing yoga? Yes. Yeah, definitely. And I see even after I met my guru, after I got married and I had children, I had a hard time keeping up the same momentum that I did, obviously, children. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was during that time, actually, I was in the process of getting a divorce and a lot was going on where I kind of pulled back in myself and started to reconnect with that and with those teachings and chanting again. And I noticed that when I did or when I didn't, that my life was, when I did chant, magical things happened and I just felt more at peace emotionally and mentally. And when I didn't, I felt more disturbed. And so um, I haven't been super consistent, but for the last few years, I've definitely been very consistent. And before that, I would say, you know, try to, I always try to do something, even if it's not to where I want to be. Right. Now I'll tell you a little bit about my, my relationship with yoga. I have flirted with it off and on for years. I've never been serious about it. Uh, I'm at the point where, you know, I've had, I have a lot of orthopedic issues. I'm very, very, very physically active. I do a lot of uh, strength training, a lot of last two years or so more, more functional than, than typical Mm -hmm. traditional gym, you know, lifts, but um, a lot of cardio, a lot of biking. I've, I've done some martial arts. I've been last month or so. I've been working a lot with a private boxing coach and and doing a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that I always know that I need to do that I don't do is yoga. And at this (laughs) point in my life, um, I'll say that it's something that I'm going to do in addition to these other things rather than instead mm-hmm. of. But I can right. tell you that I know from experience that by all means, yoga can be an absolute kick-ass workout. It's a very different type oh, yeah. of workout. Oh, yeah. And my own, the, the one experience that drives home to me, the reason I really need yoga is back in 2017, 2016, 2017, I had my first midlife crisis. I'm going through my second one right now, but um, uh-huh. it was in an extremely, extremely stressful time in my life. And I went to a yoga class at my gym and I damn near cried afterwards. I mean, I was that close to it. And that's kind of consistent with who I am emotionally. I'm somebody who, you know, I've cried after massages before because of the stress relief. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. But I literally, I went to a yoga class at my gym and I was damn near tears afterwards. So I think I have yeah. some sort of understanding of, of how it can connect to you being, you know, kind of centered and calm and things like that. Now, mm-hmm. we're kind of getting towards the end here. Tell me about living in Florida, Madhavi. Uh Well, um, I, I currently live in a little town called Alatra. It's near College Town, Gainesville, Florida, which a lot of people know. Go Gators. <laughs> Um, I went through the Florida Institute of Hypnotherapy uh, training, and I got trained in clinical hypnotherapy. And I have been practicing teaching breath work and meditation uh, for about, oh, and self-hypnosis for about 14 years now. And I work at a Ayurvedic health retreat. And I do stuff online, and I find that, you know, teaching people tools that are simple and effective 
that can make them feel better fast to reduce stress is, is great. I love doing it. And, you know, all my time in India and in the, growing up in the ashram and then in my hypnotherapy training, um, now, you know, I practice all these things and, and now I'm sharing them and I've been sharing them. And so that's kind of what Florida has been for me is setting roots down with my kids and going deep into my practice and my relationships with my friends and family and then sharing what I've learned <laughs> with with others any specific reason or anything that people specifically that people come to you uh for hypnotherapy i know i actually use hypnotherapy to lose weight um at one point yes my, my mom got yeah, me that for my 18th birthday I actually went to a uh oh, they wow. make a they make an audio tape and you listen to it every night before you go to bed and, and it actually worked mm-hmm. is there anything specific yes. that you treat people use hypno, hypnotherapy to treat people for or is it more of a general um so i a lot of a lot of people come to me just because there's a like a certain lack of happiness or comfort or they have stress or anxiety. And also it's like we're not taught how to process negative emotions or traumas growing up. Like they don't teach us in school. What do we do? So I like to work with people to teach them just how to bring their body into a state of relaxation. Like instead of fight or flight, we go to rest and digest. And then how to practice throughout the day and being mindful. Everything, really the foundation comes in with our breathing. And if we can have control over our breathing patterns, we can keep our nervous system calm. And so I really mostly work with people, you know, to alleviate traumas or process negative emotions or get clarity. And in that process, I've seen, I mean, I've seen some pretty amazing things just from using the breath just from sitting and breathing and learning how to like allow our feelings to come up and out. And I actually, the, since COVID, I've had a couple of long haulers who have gotten tremendous relief from, from just from these breathing exercises. So it, it can help, you know, our mind controls so much. Like doctors will say stress causes illness. So then the main thing is how do we reduce stress? And that's what I focus on. Well, I, Madhavi, can you tell me, uh, give me a couple of links. If somebody wanted to learn more, what would be the best resource uh, to learn about the International Society for Krishna Consciousness? And if you want to throw in a link uh, to some of the scholarly work your father has done, go uh-huh. ahead and do so here. Okay. So should I say it or should I just text it to you? Or? Well, you can say it here and we can we can also, if you want to okay. email it to me or text it to me, we can include it in the okay. link uh, when we up air this okay, episode. Perfect. All right. So, well, as far as um, the path of bhakti, you can go to purebhakti.com. That's P-U-R-E-B-H-A-K-T-I.com. And if you want to listen to lectures from my guru, we have over 13,000 recordings. It's the largest collection of bhakti recordings ever. And that's at H-A-R-I-K-A-T-H-A. Dot com, harikata.com. And my father's, all his research is equalsouls.org. I don't think I need to spell that one, equalsouls.org. And my mine is the Pran Academy, and I'm on social media, uh, Facebook and Instagram. And your, and your first name is spelled? M-A-D-H-A-V-I, and the last name is Glick, G-L-I-C-K. 
Madhavi Glick, thank you very much for being my guest on the Square Peg Podcast today. I know I've learned a lot. I hope our listeners have learned a lot. Uh, and I really look forward to getting this episode aired. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank, thank you, you for Tom. tuning in uh, to this episode of the Square Peg Podcast. We'll be right back at you in one week's time with another very interesting Hey, if you are having a wedding episode uh, and you need a photographer or videographer, if you are a local artist in the southern New Mexico or West Texas area and you uh, need a video, a music video made, uh, a real good place to go is my, my friend Isaac Palafox's business, Palomore Productions. Uh, they're located pretty close to Las Cruces downtown. And uh, you can find them on Facebook, you can find them on Instagram and all those different places. Uh, you can also get them at uh, www.palamora.com for all your weddings, music videos, and anything else you need a professional videographer or photographer. The Square Peg Podcast. Proudly produced by Las Cruces Today.com and Bravo Mike Communications.